Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking on the morning of Wednesday, August 24th, 2022, the morning after New York's second primary of the year, this one for seats in the state Senate and U.S. House of Representatives. It came after June's party primaries for state assembly and statewide seats like governor. The twin primaries are the result of a messy redistricting process that went awry and other decisions by elected officials, judges, and others. So we had our June primaries, we've had our August primaries, and we are now heading towards the general election. But before we fully do that, there's a lot to discuss. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Mara Gay, a member of the New York Times editorial board, to discuss the board's three endorsements in the primaries that just concluded and the broader results, political climate and road ahead in New York as we look to the fall general election. As usual in New York City, most of the action has been on the Democratic side, with many competitive primary races concluding this month, including for open seats with no incumbent running and where several Democratic incumbents were facing stiff challenges some from the right, some from the left. In these primaries, the Times editorial board gave its endorsement to three Democrats in their House primaries, two in New York City and one outside. And all three Democrats have won those primaries. Representative Sean Patrick Maloney in the 17th Congressional District in the Hudson Valley. He was victorious by a wide margin over State Senator Alessandra Biagi. Representative Jerry Nadler in the 12th Congressional District of Manhattan, that's that redrawn district that put both Representative Jerry Nadler and Representative Carol Maloney in the same district, the east side and the west side of Manhattan. Nadler was victorious by a wide margin over Maloney and Attorney Serge Patel. And probably most interesting, most competitively, to Daniel Goldman, a former federal prosecutor who was impeachment counsel in the first impeachment of former President Donald Trump. And he has been declared the victor in the 10th congressional district covering parts of lower Manhattan and a big stretch of Brooklyn, a very crowded, competitive primary there. It's looking like the second place finisher will be Assemblymember Yuli New. And a number of other candidates in the race, including Representative Mondaire Jones, who moved from his uh, Hudson Valley home and district to run in the new 10th congressional district after this redistricting process, city council member Carlina Rivera and others. There are still thousands of absentee ballots yet to be counted, but Goldman has been declared victorious by the Associated Press and seems to have a lead that will not be caught. So the Times editorial board appears to be going three for three here, and and Goldman's victory could easily be attributed to the board's endorsement in that narrow race. We'll talk that over with Mara Gay in just a moment. Briefly, I also want to note, overall in New York City, incumbency was again very strong, whether among progressives or moderate Democrats. And broadly speaking, the left of the Democratic Party had a very good night, although not in that New York 10 race, uh, including staving off several very organized and well-resourced primary challenges to sitting state senators like Robert Jackson and Gustavo Rivera, who have won their primaries, and likely picking up the new open state Senate seat with Democratic Socialist Kristen Gonzalez winning the primary for the new 59th State Senate District, which spans parts of three boroughs. We'll get into that now. 
If you want more on the state Senate, we're going to focus here with Mara Gay in just a moment on the congressional races mostly, but I will also be having an episode of the show uh, here this week with Jeff Colton of City and State New York to talk about the state Senate races in some depth, so stay tuned for that as well. Uh, among those who had tough nights are Representative Adriano Espiat, who was backing some of those challengers to sitting state senators, and Mayor Eric Adams, who was also backing some challenges to uh, sitting state senators that won and others. All right. Let me also quickly mention that I just joined friends and colleagues over at the FAQ NYC podcast with Harry Siegel, Katie Honan, Dr. Christina Greer, to break down some of the results late on primary night, as I always do, so you can get into a whole bunch of stuff from various perspectives there that we won't be talking about here. So lots of different avenues to discuss. Let's bring on Mara Gay of the New York Times editorial board. Mara, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. It's fun. So uh, I didn't get into even everything there uh, in that intro. There was a, a big Democratic win uh, last night in a special congressional election in the Hudson Valley that some are seeing as a bellwether, a tea leaf for things to come in the midterms. Maybe you have thoughts on that. We can get to that in a few minutes with Democrat Pat Ryan uh, defeating Republican Mark Molinaro to, to head to Congress for a short time to finish up Antonio Delgado, the new lieutenant governor's term. Uh, and uh, Republican Representative Nicole Maliotakis and former uh, Representative Max Rose, a Democrat, both won their primaries as expected to head towards uh, the competitive general election in the 11th Congressional District covering Staten Island and part of Brooklyn. Uh, and that'll be, again, probably one of the only very competitive general elections in New York City. All right. So before we jump into a bunch of specifics, Mara, any big takeaways of the results that we saw? Any most pressing thoughts that you've been sort of wrestling with in these um, half sleepless nights that we get on these election nights? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what, what's top of mind for you this morning? Maybe this is TMI, but I had a dream <laughs> last night about Nicole Maliotakis. Okay. And um, that, you know, just shows you um, how, you know, in our heads, these races get for those of us who are political junkies. Um, but no, I mean, I think the my big takeaway, I have to say, is really that I'm just so um, kind of demoralized by the fact of having an August primary at all. Uh, turnout last night was uh, as low as can be expected. And I, I can't give you like one single number just because we had so many different races going on and other primaries weren't competitive at all. But as an example, in New York 10, in New York City, the new district that spans from lower Manhattan to, you know, Brownstone, Brooklyn um, and Sunset Park, Red Hook, we saw about 70,000, 71,000 people voting. Um, and I, I just... You know, we should we should never have a, a random August primary on a Tuesday. It just shows you everything that's kind of broken. Um, this is just no way to have a democracy. It's very frustrating. A lot of people are away right now. So I think that's my big takeaway. And so because of that, I feel that sometimes it can be very difficult to um, have a takeaway mm. with a reasonable sample size. That said, we do have results and elections have consequences no matter how many people vote. So I think what we saw last night, my my takeaway, given all of those parameters, is that um, the distinctions that uh, political parties, that uh, parts of the Democratic Party, you know, uh, socialists or progressives or um, so-called moderate uh, Democrats, the distinctions that elected officials and kind of those wings of the party 
uh, layout for voters may not actually be the way voters actually uh, participate in American politics. I think what you see is the power of incumbency, as you mentioned, Ben, but also just the idea that I think, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I think people vote based on who they think will represent them. And it may not really matter uh, whether someone is or is not a socialist. Uh, I think the attempt to paint uh, Dan Goldman in New York 10 as somebody who was kind of this corporate Democrat or, you know, uh, worse in the view of of some Democrats that failed in part because of that, uh, which is that voters don't really uh, paint themselves so stringently along these lines. And people who voted for Jabari Brisport, right, the socialist state senator, they may not even be socialist, but maybe they didn't want to vote for his opponent who um, had a history of uh, homophobia. So I think these are our Democrats that, uh, you know, are willing to make decisions based on individual candidates. And I think, you know, to that point, you, you, we get so locked in, uh, those of us, and, and that's this, this is probably true for many people listening and not true for many people listening, but those of us who really follow closely get so locked in on who's endorsing who. And and I don't mean this even about the Times editorial board. I mean about elected officials and, you know, the Working Families Party or this union or that union. And some of those absolutely matter and some of them probably don't matter. But voters have feelings about candidates that we very often just sort of leave out of a lot of this discussion. Voters care about who knocked on their door. They care about who they saw at a subway stop. They care about one particular issue where you better have a, the right position for them, or it doesn't matter what your other positions are. Or if they can't find a climate section on your website, you're out because they think the climate crisis is the most important thing facing uh, the world and New York. So you know, I, as as you were just getting it, you talk to enough uh, voters and people, you realize how how nuanced it is, uh, and how people are not thinking in these boxes. And and obviously, you know, this this is a reminder about sort of ranked choice voting last year. Everybody thought in the mayoral race, you know, you're gonna people are gonna rank the you know more progressive candidates first, and then maybe they get to the more moderate candidates. And that's just not really how right. how people think. Um, in terms of um, these congressional races, uh, let's let's start with a little bit of the of the easier one, I guess. Um, Jerry Nadler winning by this wide margin. He won a lot of votes on the east side in some of the initial tabulations that we see. Uh, our friend Steve Romaluski at the CUNY Mapping Service putting out great initial maps quickly last night on Twitter, as he always does. Um, you could see how well Nadler did in parts of the of the East Side and really running away with this. What would you make of that other than other than that? The Times editorial board gave East Side voters an additional reason to to vote for Jerry Nadler, perhaps. What would you make of that? Well, you know, it's interesting, right, because because of the na- because of the nature of this bizarre, unusual primary, we didn't have a lot of solid polling. And so I really had no idea what was going to happen going into this. And both Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler in particular had 30 years of constituents who they had served. And so it was kind of hard to read the tea leaves there. But I do think in the end that, um, and not just the editorial board, but the Working Families Party and others did coalesce around uh, Congressman Nadler in the end. And I think that he got what, 
uh, Bill Clinton used to call Big Mo, right? Some mm. some big momentum um, so far as that's possible in an August primary. And I really think that that made the difference. And I, I don't know that Carolyn Maloney's, um, you know, the, the last few weeks of her campaign helped her any um, when she was kind of questioning Jerry Nadler's um, mental state and all of that. And so that can kind of take on an air of desperation, um, which is unfortunate because she's, you know, for the most part, ably served that district for a long time. Mm. But I do think that's what happened. And I think that people who, when you just talk to voters in New York, um, as I have all year and all summer, people who were voting for Jerry Nadler felt really good about it. Um, they felt like he had not only ably served them, but they were proud, actually. Um, they were proud of his vote against the Iraq war, which was very unpopular at the time. They were proud of his vote against the Patriot Act. And they felt that he continued to work on issues um, using his seniority as chairman of the Judiciary Committee, right, um, that are still very highly relevant, uh, you know, in this moment of democratic peril. So, uh, for example, his work on on gun control measures and his work on the Trump impeachment. So they had also seen him on television kind of doing that work. It just it made a lot of sense mm-hmm. in retrospect. What, what do you make? Um, and, and obviously, you know, anytime you need to in this conversation, you know, be clear for listeners what's sort of the board, which is obviously a bigger collection of people than yourself and what sort of, you know, just just your uh, personal thoughts. But um. What what do you make of um, of this argument about generational change and some of these older uh, representatives who've been in Congress a very long time who have some of the uh, track record of bringing resources back to the district? Maybe even in in Jerry Nadler's case, you know, for you and others, have this voting record that really stands up over time. You know, to the to people who uh, you know share the share the perspective on those votes. Uh, especially in this progressive uh, city and especially district um, versus sort of making way for a new generation of leaders. Uh, you know, Serge Patel was was making this argument. He, of course, is, as the Times editorial board pointed out in its endorsement of Nadler, you know, doesn't doesn't really have a record of serving the district. You know, he's he's been in in uh, private business, which is obviously totally fine. But uh, Carolyn Maloney even you know pointed this out many times. What what actually has he done? You know, he didn't doesn't seem to have done much even between his runs for Congress to try to um, you know get into communities a bit more in the areas he's looking to serve and and such. Um, but so he, he so he had a somewhat flawed message is, is my point there on the need for generational change because of maybe some of that lack of service or, or, or ties to some of the communities in the district, even though he's now run three straight times. Um, but but more broadly than that, what do you make of that argument about seniority versus the need for sort of making way for a new generation of, of leaders? And that obviously came up in Liz Holtzman's run as well in New York 10, but um, but especially was obviously so forefront for many people in in this New York 12 race? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that, um, first of all, we need, I can, I do feel like I can, this is, there is a sense on the board that we have a gerontocracy problem in Congress. Uh, It's very real. And it's a problem when the people serving um, Americans are out of touch broadly with the experiences um, of the people they serve. So that's an issue. And uh, we are concerned about that. I think 
you know, one of the interesting things about the reaction in New York politics to some of our endorsements is that there tends to be like a myopia. Um, you know, the board is looking at not just races in New York, but we're looking at the landscape of the entire country and of the entire Congress. Um, and so, you know, I would love to endorse in every single congressional race, obviously that's not feasible. Um, but I think that, you know, the point it here is that um, in these particular races, uh, we felt that these were the best candidates given uh, the landscape, not just in New York, but nationally. And, you know, those, those decisions are made not just um, in that view of what uh, might be right for New York, but what might be right for the country or the Congress overall. Mm-hmm. And so I think we don't want to have a situation either where you know, you have ageism where you simply say, well, just because somebody is older or younger, they shouldn't serve. And so, you know, this is a board that did endorse, um, you know, uh, AOC several Mm -hmm. years ago, um, you know, for a similar reason, right, which is that um, we thought that uh, that was the right thing uh, in that district. But, you know, in this case, I think Jerry Nadler's record and seniority was being put to very important use. And so I think we can make of this that, you know, every case, every race is very different. Um, And so you don't want to make decisions simply based on age or identity alone. It it has to be very difficult to sort of weigh individual races and the larger picture as you're getting at. And, you know, I'm not saying it's just because you're here talking, but, you know, it was, it was, and I'm sure you have thoughts on this. So jump in, you know, it was a little hard when there was a sample size of three, to see people giving the board so much, uh, you know, gruff over endorsing three white men. On one hand, of course, in this in this political climate, in this world, in this you know uh, century that we're living in, there's a lot of heightened sensitivity to that and awareness of that and the importance of diversity and representation. On the other hand, like I said, it's in three individual races and it's a sample size of three. Uh, so you know, I was I was sort of feeling. Uh, slightly, slightly badly for you all when that reaction was coming in. But how how are you thinking about about? I that? mean, that's kind. I would say, <laughs> thank you for that. It is a small sample size. Um, I am not unaware of what that image looked like. Um, and you know, uh, I would say that we really do need um, more diversity in every way in Congress and in many institutions in American life. And so uh, we should be concerned about that. Um, But, you know, that doesn't mean that we can make individual decisions. I mean, we just chose the best candidates, um, as I said, you know, for each of these three races as we saw it and um, with the national landscape in mind as well, Mm -hmm. I would say. Um, So, so so on that, let's move to Goldman and, and New York 10, you know, national landscape, local issues, um, say a little, give us a little more insight into, you know, how the board was weighing that. I mean, some of it obviously sure. came out in the endorsement, but, you know, Goldman's campaign was very much based on national issues. He clearly didn't, you know, have a lot of, uh, again, ties to communities within the district, some, but, you know, he also said, you know, I've been a, f- a federal prosecutor and not really al- allowed to do a lot of local political work. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe he could have shown up at some some more stuff than he has. But, um, you know, very much a nationally focused campaign uh, 
threats to democracy, Trumpism, lies about elections, misinformation, and so forth, versus several candidates, obviously, who represent parts of the district. Give us a little more insight into sure. the sort of thinking around that. Sure. So I will say, you know, um, as we wrote in the endorsement, you know, we were very impressed specifically with Daniel Goldman and Mondaire Jones. Um, and, you know, I think in the case of Dan Goldman, um, we felt that uh, he had some pretty specific and special and unusual skills um, that could come in use in Congress in terms of holding hearings, um, holding the previous president accountable, um, which we believe is necessary for democracy. Um, and, uh, you know, in a Republican controlled Congress, which is certainly a possibility, those skills in terms of holding some of these hearings could really come in handy. Uh, his reputation is excellent um, as a, a former prosecutor. And, you know, I think we felt that that would be uh, very useful. And also that he can learn some of the other parts of the job. Uh, there's a sincerity there, I believe, and I really would like to see him. And it's crucial that he does this, really build those relationships with communities. He's from Tribeca. He needs to be spending time in Red Hook, in Sunset Park, in the, the entire district. Um, and I think it's clear that he knows that he needs to make up that ground. And so if he doesn't, then somebody else who can do that job better will come along. And that's how it should work. I think in the case of Mondaire Jones, um, you know, we had heard and we were aware just through reporting that he had a great reputation in Washington as a bridge builder between the progressive wing of the party and leadership. And we also think that's very important. And so that does kind of lead, you know, full circle back to the frustration here about the way that these primaries came to be. And so, you know, ultimately for him personally, that decision to leave his district proved fateful. You don't know what would have happened in an alternate universe. But, um, you know, we were very impressed with both of those candidates. And so uh, that was a difficult decision, but we made the call the best way we could. I will admit that I was wrong uh, in thinking that the board was likely to go with either Mondaire Jones or Carlina Rivera. Um you know, I, I thought there was a, a chance the board would go with Goldman based on sort of uh, that national profile, the moment, you know, given uh, questions about how Republicans are going to handle upcoming elections and and some of the things we're seeing all over the country. And of course, what former President Trump has continued to do uh, and many who support him. Um, can you say a little bit more about how Carlina Rivera, because, you know, there. Obviously, a lot of people on the left wanted the board to endorse Yulene New. I, I never sort of saw that as a possibility. But um, Carlina Rivera's politics seem to line up with the board in, in a lot of ways. Um, I know uh, that you've been supportive of some of the decisions that she's been involved with, like the Soho rezoning. Um, you know, she seems to be sort of thinking about New York issues in ways that seem to align with with how the Times editorial board likes for local politicians to be thinking about local issues. You can correct me if I'm wrong. What what went sort of awry for her in the interview with you and and how much how much does the interview with you matter versus some of those decisions and local issues? It's a great question. Sorry, uh, two parter. I can remind you the second part. Of yeah, no, I mean, I do want to say I think yeah. she's served, you know, very well in the city council and her vote on the Soho rezoning is a great example of political courage that, you know, uh, New Yorkers deserve. 
especially on housing. So that's very attractive. Um, and so uh, hopefully she'll continue to do that work. I thought she ran a great campaign. Um, I think it's not just about ideology. I mean, I think if you look, you know, the, the board uh, really supported a lot of the policies that Maya Wiley did, you know, in, in 2021, but we went with Catherine Garcia because we felt it was important city have a manager. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's not just a matter of whether ideology or positions line up, though that's a part of it. I mean, otherwise, I'm going to have to just say that, you know, I always walk in with an open mind and so do my colleagues, truly. Um, and, you know, uh, I would let the transcripts speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of the the interviews versus that larger record, how, how does that weigh do, do, when you when you're deliberating as a board? Um, does it seem, you know, is it fair to say that the interviews are really the the most you know important mm-hmm. um material that's discussed or or how much does you know someone's record in the city council or record elsewhere yeah. you know really come into the discussion well it's an art not a science and <laughs> obviously we're human and so sometimes we uh get excited about someone or impressed or you know, discouraged or disappointed um, or shocked, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. as the case may be in an interview. And certainly that can kind of swing things one way or another. But I think just to give people a little bit of a peek behind the scenes, um, I don't want to lose too much of the mystery, but I will say that, you know, there's an enormous amount of work that goes into the this process behind the scene. It's not just that we summon candidates, you know, uh, to our boardroom, And that's all we do. I mean, I personally do a ton of reporting, a ton of talking to reporters um, at the Times and elsewhere. I uh, we look at polls. We, um, you know, talk to people who worked with these candidates for years. Good, bad, ugly people who are endorsing them. Uh, I hear from people who, you know, went to high school with some of them. Um, they, sometimes they have good things to say, sometimes not. Um, in this case, there was an intense lobbying campaign um, for several of the candidates that, you know, we heard from a lot of national figures um, who people would know. And I won't I won't go into that. But, you know, so there is a lot that goes into this. And so uh, the interviews are really important, but they're not the, necessarily the deciding factor. I mean, each race, each candidate is is very different. And there, there's been speculation out there. I'm sure you've seen some of it that um, the relationships between the the publishing, you know, family of the of the Times and the Goldman family had something to do with this endorsement. And you tell people um, if there, you know, were uh, significant sort of institutional forces at play in that endorsement that were outside of the members of the editorial board. You know, um, I'm just one member on the board and I'm going to let the statement that the Times put out really just cover that. But I will all I'll say about it is, you know, and we're very open about this, is that the editorial board represents the views of the publisher and the board. And, uh, you know, so uh, there's nothing nefarious here, um, but I'll leave it at that. I mean, I, I think silly. And and to your to your earlier point about Daniel Goldman and and sort of um, where he needs to do more work here as he is apparently going to be the Democrat is the Democratic nominee as called by the AP. Obviously, some more ballots to be counted. There will be probably some discussion about whether uh, Yuli New and the Working Families Party and others on the left will try to run a general election. That is possible on the Working Families Party line. There's a a lot that would have to happen there, and that would be a very big 
move to make here. But um, but as the Democratic nominee coming out here, you mentioned that Dan Goldman will have to or should <laughs> make some real inroads in communities. Looking at the initial results map that Steve Romalewski from the CUNY uh, Mapping Center at, at the Graduate Center uh, for CUNY put out, you know, Dan Goldman seems to have won based on the wealthiest parts of this district. He significantly self-funded his campaign with millions of dollars. Say a little bit more about what you think people should make of that. Did did the self-funding element of this give the board pause at all? Was that not really a factor on the radar at the time? I mean, I, I will say that I, um, in the same way, I don't think age should be a deciding factor. I don't think having a lot of money or lack thereof should be. Um, but listen, I, I really, I think it's clear based on the results that um, and we, we knew that this was possible, that anybody in this race could win with um, not a majority, but a plurality mm-hmm. um, and a small one. And that's what happened here. Um, so what that says to me is that there is huge progressive energy or, you know, I, I, energy in the left of the party, whatever you want to call it in this district. And also that's not just about ideology, but that's about, I think, a real suffering um, of people in this district who aren't wealthy. So middle-class, upper middle-class, working poor people who are absolutely desperate for housing, um, for relief from rent um, and from cost of living and have a lot of really other pressing issues that Dan Goldman, if elected in November, absolutely needs to be responsive to. Um, And that hunger is not gonna go away. And I really hope that above all, even though housing is considered a local issue, that if he ends up in Congress, that Dan Goldman will work really hard to be responsive to that and to understand that, you know, the majority of his constituents are actually, um, you know, not super wealthy, uh, but really have some serious needs, especially around housing that need to be addressed urgently. You are listening to Max Politics here with Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm joined by Mara Gay of the New York Times editorial board. We're in our last few minutes here. Thank you very much for taking the time. We're speaking here on the morning of Wednesday, August 24th. Both of us a little bleary eyed after another election night. Uh, but Mara, thanks for, for taking the time. Just uh, just a couple more questions for you. Um, do you see the 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 three wins and especially the Goldman win here as a as a validation of the Times endorsement? Do you see it as um, uh, the Times tipping the win in Goldman's favor here in a very narrow race, where obviously the Times editorial board, uh, you know, opinion matters to some significant chunk of voters, especially in a district like New York 12 or 10. Um, how, how do you think about how the role of the endorsement played in the politics of the outcome here in, yeah, in, ten, in 10 specifically? Yeah, it's impossible to know for sure. Um, I will say as long as I have, you know, a lobbying campaign headed my direction in the direction of my colleagues for our endorsement, then I will continue to believe that it does play a role for voters, at least in some races, in some way. Um, And, you know, hopefully, even if you don't agree with our endorsements, you know that we take this process exceptionally seriously, um, always, you know, with uh, just in mind, you know, what is right for the voters, for the country. And, Hopefully the transcripts as well uh, that we've put up, you know, provide some clarity into 
um, or just some usefulness for voters, I hope. And, and um, sometimes you want to get people on the record, right? Just like uh, yeah. saying that they support abortion rights or what, whatever it is. So we'll see. Um, and so, yeah, but we don't go into this. I do want to say we don't go into this thinking we just want to pick winners. That is not what drives us. And that's always nice, but that's not, that is not what drives me um, or my colleagues. So say, say more about what does drive you, uh, you know, how, 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 what, what, what does drive you when you're making these decisions? Is it, is it the idea that you said, you know, even about Catherine Garcia, which is just sort of the, the, the right person for the right, you know, at the right moment for the right job uh, and just really trying to discern that, or, or how do you think about yeah. your role? Here? Every race is different, but mm-hmm. I would say, um, you know, I was and remain very frustrated and disappointed by um, just overall, um, you know, uh, the lack of urgency around housing from uh, not simply the majority of the candidates that we interviewed in this case, but uh, the majority of incumbents in New York who are serving uh, people who um are really trying to hold on to their homes and stay in the communities they love. I think that was my big takeaway. I would say an exception to that is Alessandra Biaggi, the state senator who lost to uh, Sean Patrick Maloney. And uh, if you look at her transcript, she actually, I think, kind of gets that issue, which was refreshing. But otherwise, um, I don't really hear a lot of urgency around that. And uh, that's my big frustration. So that's what's driving me personally at the moment. Um, But there are many other considerations that go into um, endorsements. And I am but one member of a board. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And as that one board member, as we wrap up here, um, Mondaire Jones, it looks like, you know, who obviously the board has, has been favorable towards in his initial run that he, that he won a couple of years ago. Yes, exactly. And, and now saying very uh, kind things about him in this New York 10 race, where there was obviously a lot of skepticism about this move of his, where in in some manner of speaking, Sean Patrick Maloney, who who you backed as a board, pushed pushed him out of that race. He could have stayed to to fight that race, and Alessandro Biaggi very likely wouldn't have run uh, in that race. In that case, um, any sort of parting thoughts here on <laughs> on that whole sort of messy situation? And uh, clearly, from your point of view, the board's point of view, the disappointment of losing Mondaire Jones in Congress. Yeah. I mean, life is short, but life is long. So I hope he remains uh, in uh, politics. I hope Alessandra Biagi remains in politics. I think both of them have a lot to contribute. Any other thoughts uh, that we didn't get to here in, in parting? No, I just want to say, you know, I live in this district in 10. I, um, you know, we're real people. Like we don't always, uh, you know, agree with our readers, or maybe we don't get it right in the view of some, but uh, I care deeply about the city and um, I'm seeing everything that everybody else is seeing. And so um, hopefully we can just do better in terms of turnout and um, have a more democratic process with the small D in the future. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you to Mara Gay uh, from the New York Times editorial board. Really appreciate you taking the time and be well. Enjoy uh, these last days of summer. 